I would say the future of crypto for me is a mix of pure fintech and a mix of elements of crypto into fintech. So imagine, for example, today, if you were to go and invest in a pure VC fund, it's very difficult because you have to be an accredited investor. But in the ICO world, the crypto stage, you could actually anyone could go and invest even less than $10 into, into crypto. And so I feel like you would see a lot of projects that will fuse or take the, or fintech companies that will take the elements of crypto and you know, become better. Hey everybody, Tanner here with Wagner Ventures. On today's episode, we have Amrit Kumar, COO at Altmayer. For anyone who's new, this is the Wagner Ventures podcast, where we do snapshots with interesting builders and founders from across Web3. Check out wagnerventures.io to learn more about the syndicate behind the podcast. But for now, let's get into it with Amrit at Altmayer. All right. Hey, everybody. I'm here today with Amrit Kumar, COO at Altlayer. Amrit, how are you doing today? It's alive, I would say. Alive yeah. in, this, in this crypto winter. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are doing great. This is. I'm so excited to chat here. This is going to be an awesome conversation. And we're definitely going to talk about, you know, a lot about the awesome work happening at Altlayer. But I thought, you know, a good place to start could just be a little bit on you, too. So could you tell us a little bit about your story and how you ended up in Web3? What drew you to the space? Yeah, sure. So basically, I come from academia. I did my PhD in computer science. I was mostly interested in security and privacy of software systems uh, during my PhD days. And this was the time when academics were starting to get interested in, in the blockchain space, in particular Bitcoin, right? Until that time, you know, people were people felt like, okay, Bitcoin is great and blockchains are great, but you know, it doesn't have the critical mass quite yet, or it's not interesting enough for researchers and academics. But this was changing. This was, I'm talking about, you know, 2013, 2014. But I was finishing my PhD and, you know, it felt like, okay, I would like to go into blockchains and do some work there, but you know, I was so busy with my research work that I didn't have much time to kind of wander around. But then when I was finishing up my PhD, I felt, okay, this is the time. Now that I finished my PhD, I can go over and do something in the blockchain space. And so I went to Singapore. One, because Singapore at that time, this was 2016, 2017. So the time when ICOs were you know, flourishing, I would say. And Singapore was, I would say, the center of you know, people doing ICOs and people building projects. So I went to Singapore and instead of joining a startup and building something, I went to join a university. So I went to do a postdoctoral research at the University of Singapore. And uh, this is where I guess the first work that I got involved with was uh, Monero. Uh, I would say early 2016 and Monero was actually becoming quite popular among people you know, wanting to do sort of privacy preserving transactions. And so me and so my colleagues in the lab, we worked on Monero. We published a paper and we showed that Monero was actually not very private in the early days. And then me and some of my colleagues in the lab, we started a company called Zilliqa. So this was early 2017. Zilliqa, I would say, was the last project that made it through the ICO funding process. So yeah, my role at Zilliqa was as the chief science officer. So I was mostly interested in challenging problems in the space. I stayed at Zilliqa for about three years, and then we started Altair. Perfect. Okay. So, you know, you have these two recent experiences of chief investment officer and then now kind of operating capacity as COO at Altlayer. And I'm curious, just before we jump into more about Altlayer, like how have these two pretty different professional perspectives shaped the way you think about what you're up to now? And, you know, what have you learned from each? So I would say that they are two different things completely. So, I mean, they, you could be a very good founder, but very bad at investment. And I'm not saying I'm the best investor on the planet today. However, I think there are certain perspectives that founders get. When you are, and you need that founder's perspective when you're investing. Because if you just feel like, okay, here is my thesis, I'm going to go ahead with my thesis, that's not enough. 
because founders experience all sorts of issues and all sorts of things that they have to deal with on a regular basis. And only founders can understand that and have that experience. You know, it's people say that, you know, and I recommend everyone to work at a startup. If you can't find a startup and you know, start a startup of your own, you have to at least go and work at a startup in the early stages. Because the learnings that you get from a startup is something that you can't learn from, you know, anywhere, literally. You know, you can't watch broadcasts and read books and hope that, okay, I've acquired all the knowledge that a founder needs to start his venture. So it's a very experienced thing. And I think having a founder come in and join an investment firm and sort of help those founders who are coming in is a valuable insight. So I would say that, yes, it doesn't necessarily mean that you become a good investor, but you have a certain perspective that an investor often doesn't have. Yeah, that's terrific. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Altlayer here. So in your own words, how would you describe or explain what Altlayer is and what it enables? Yeah, so I mean, if you look at people live in a world where you will have, let's say, hundreds, if not thousands of rollups, right? And these rollups will be customized for different use cases and applications. So imagine, for example, you spin up a, let's say you're building a game and you don't want this game to be deployed on Ethereum simply because Imagine it's a fully on-chain game and you, your users will have to send transactions to the fully on-chain game contract and that will acquire and that will require gas. And it's quite painful in terms of gaming experience. So you want an infrastructure where you can go and customize uh, the infrastructure that would be best for your game, right? And for your gaming experience. So uh, we make it possible to deploy these, let's say, gaming-specific infrastructure quite easily. So that you as a developer, you can go and focus on building a good game and you do not have to worry about, oh, how am I going to run my sequencer? How am I going to run my RPC endpoint? How to find my explorers and so on and so forth. So the idea is to make it possible for developers to have and own application-specific infrastructure and deploy them within minutes. Love it. Okay. So I read this blog post titled The Case for Altlayer, and it discusses what some of the rationale behind the product was or some of the initial offerings. Basically, you know, seeing this trend of numerous dApps move from kind of a general purpose chain to an app-specific chain. And so... Can you maybe expand on this trend in more detail and maybe talk a little bit about other trends that were sort of validating the concepts of Altlayer outside of this trend of dApps moving to app-specific chains? Yeah, so basically, you know, when we started, at least the space started with Ethereum, right? You have you had this notion of world computer. So you will have one shared computer across and for everyone. And you could basically deploy your contracts or applications on that shared computer and then have access and give that access to other users. So from a dApp developer perspective, it's actually quite easy because if you're building on a general purpose chain like Ethereum or let's say Solana or Avalanche, it's quite easy because from your perspective, all you have to do is to write your contracts, deploy them on the base chain and you're good to go. You as a developer, you do not have to worry about, oh, who's going to run my network? How do I find these validators? And how do I incentivize them in some way, right? So it's very easy for a developer. All you need is to write your contracts and maybe build, build a front end, that's it. But there's some downsides. One is that the general purpose chain don't actually scale with the DAP. So, you know, and that's kind of where we're seeing the, the emergence and the growth of app specific infrastructure. Because if you are building on a general purpose chain, you're basically competing with every single other application that's on the chain, right? And so that behavior kind of gives bad user experience that's not very scalable. And there are many scenarios, as I mentioned earlier, about gaming. You need an application-specific infrastructure. And so you have this other idea of, okay, why don't we go and build an app chain using something like Cosmos or Polkadot, right? Unfortunately, Cosmos hasn't been very popular among game developers, but you know you, have, you can see game developers actually building their own app-specific chains, right? For example, Axie Infinity is a good example where they started with Ronin and they have their own completely 
dedicated infrastructure for the games. But the thing about you know Cosmos-style chains or app chains is that you still have to go and build your network. You still have to go and find validators. It's not as simple as a general purpose chain where you just have to deploy your contract. You actually have to go and find a network and bootstrap the entire network. And that's one, very time costly. So you have to go and find these validators and that's, you, know, you have to spend a lot of time on that. And then you also have to worry about, okay, how, now I have to incentivize these people. And that's again, expensive. Now imagine you're building a game and you are not sure initially how many users will come and play this game. Or you're building a DeFi project and you're not sure about the user base initially. And so you don't want to spend so much time, energy, and money into bootstrapping an entire app chain, right? So you had these completely two different ends in some ways. So on one side, you have this general purpose chain, which is very easy to use, very easy to deploy on, but they're not very scalable, they're not very customizable. Well, on the other hand, you have this Cosmos-style app chain model, which is you know, very scalable because you basically own the chain, so your DAP basically owns the entire block space, but you have to worry about finding validators and you have to worry about, okay, how to bootstrap and how to incentivize these validators. But you can customize. The other problem with, with uh, app chains is that, you know, you kind of sit on an island, right? Because it's not your block space, it's not shared with other applications. You kind of miss out on liquidity. You kind of miss out on composability. Some of this is changing, by the way, uh, you know, with special bridges and new kind of bridges. But basically you have two choices at the moment. At least two years ago, you had basically two choices. You either could go general purpose route or you could go apps, app specific chain route. What happened, I would say, in around 2020 or 2021 is that you had these rollups that came in. Right? You had, for example, Optimism and Arbitrum that were launched. And with that, you know, we had this idea of why don't you build, let's say, something like an app specific rollup. Now, when you build something like an app specific rollup, you can actually have interesting bits of both sides. So, for example, you do not have to worry about bootstrapping the network because, in the end, you can get, if it's an L2, if it's a rollup, you can get the security from your base layer, for example, Ethereum. So you do not have to go and find hundreds of validators for your app chain, like the way you do for your app chain. And the other benefit is that it's unlike a Cosmos-based app chain, you don't, you just need one single sequencer, and that's enough to, to give you, you know, security guarantees in most cases. And so we felt like the app rollups are really great because they kind of gives you some parts of, uh, let's say, an app chain or the benefits of an app chain because basically you can customize your app rollup in all sorts of ways. But it also is, helps you in terms of bootstrapping the network because you, all you need is a couple of sequences maximum. Then we extended this idea and we felt like, look, what if you wanted to get, get the best of both worlds in a pure sense of it? And we came up with this idea of flash layers. So basically, these are rollups that you can spin up and you can use them for as long as you want. I mean, you feel like you're done with it, you don't need this anymore, you can take it down. And why is it interesting? Because imagine you are building a game or you're building a DeFi project and you're not sure whether you want to go an app-specific route or you want to go an app roll-up route because, you know, why spend so much time and energy even in building any of this, right? So you feel like, okay, why don't I experiment with this? So I want to spin up this roll-up. I want to use it for to feel and get a, get a sense of whether there's a demand for it. And when you feel like, okay, I've got the critical mass, then you want to switch over to a more persistent set. So we came up with this flashlight idea and that really gave the best of both worlds because you can now get all the benefits of an app chain because while the roll-up is live and running, it's fully customizable. It's a block space that you own. And so it's it's kind of essentially like an app chain. And when that app, app roll-up flash like gets taken down, it gives you all the benefits of a general purpose chain because whatever assets you had, or let's say any state that was there on that roll-up can go back to a settlement of chain of your choice. So for example, on Ethereum. So for example, if you have any NFTs or any ERC20 tokens sitting on that roll-up, they will be settled back on Ethereum. So now you can get all the benefits, liquidity benefits that Ethereum gives you. So for example, you could trade on OpenSea, you could lend your assets through uh, any NFT lending protocols and whatnot. 
So yeah, we felt like app chains are great, but you can make them better if you have an app specific rollup. And that's kind of what we're targeting and you know pushing for. Yeah, I love it. Okay. Super interesting. So you know, the testnet thus far seen tremendous usage, at least 680,000 wallets and 2.5 million transactions. Those numbers are probably outdated. You know, I'm curious, what have been from the inside, like what have been the biggest surprises in where adoption's coming from? And, and where do you suspect will be kind of some of the biggest obstacles also in moving forward that may require some salts? Yes, I mean, if you look at the space over the last year or so, there has been quite a bit of chatter around, okay, gaming would be the next big thing, right? And it felt like, okay, you know, people are just excited because gaming is seems to be a rather easy project because uh, all you have to do is to build you know, a game. You don't have to think about, okay, oh, I, I need to invent a new, let's say, AMM or something. It's less complicated. Right, right. Mathematical. But on the ground, when you actually go and talk to developers, there are a lot of challenging problems you know, when you're building games. One is you have two choices. You can go and, you know, let's say, turn your game into a very financial-driven you know, mechanism and it doesn't attract any Web2-style gamers, right? So there's still a huge gap uh, between what people actually want to play and what us as game builders are building, right, in general. So there's one challenge that I would say, and I'll come back to, you know, what you know, all the things that we're seeing, but one challenge that I'm seeing is around people building games, but still they are nowhere near to what you see in the Web2 space. And the reason why I'm saying, talking about, I'm focusing about games is because the games is one sector where we are seeing quite a bit of demand for app-specific infrastructure. Because they feel like, okay, if you... Imagine you're building a DeFi project, right? Because there's a chance of making money, there's a kind of financial aspect to it. People are kind of used to, or people kind of can live with a bad user experience, right? So you could say, okay, I have to go and bridge asset from Ethereum to Arbitrum and then do another two hops and then I can get on some Lendy protocol and get some yield. And people are generally fine with it, okay? I agree that, you know, it doesn't track normal users, but most people, at least in the Web3 space, are still okay with this, you know, so-called poor experience. But that doesn't work with gaming. For game developers, you have, or game developers actually want to attract gamers. They have to make sure that their latency is good. You cannot have a network where every single transaction that you make takes about, let's say, 15 seconds. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Gaming is really one sector that we are, we are seeing a lot of demand for apps with infrastructure, but also we are seeing that, okay, people are still not coming up with good gaming ideas that can compete with what we have to work. And one, one other surprise that we noticed, and this is something that are completely, you know, we are completely unaware of this, you know, until very recently was that almost every single, let's say, app-specific chain builder or app-specific roll-up provider they have been talking about is games. But the one sector that people don't talk about, at least not often, is these quest platforms. You know, imagine Galaxy, imagine, you know, Taskon and a bunch of other, you know, projects that are out there. They give people this ability to, let's say, run campaigns on their platforms and then any community member can go and, you know, follow those campaigns where basically you have to complete some tasks and if you complete those tasks, you get some NFT. And those NFTs can later be redeemed for any, let's say, airdrop. What you've seen is that a lot of these projects actually want to have their own app specific rollup. And that's really interesting. You know, I, I wasn't one, I wasn't even aware that they wanted to have this feature. But yeah, they definitely want app specific rollup. The third sector that again has surprised me quite a bit is on the DeFi. About a year ago, if you spoke with any DeFi project, they would say, you know what, there's no way I'm gonna build on a, an app specific chain or app specific rollup. No way. How would that change since DYDX? Uh, when DYDX announced that they're going to build their own app-specific chain using Cosmos, a lot of other projects started to think about at least moving their own uh, their app to an app-specific infrastructure. And of, of course, you know, 
Uniswap is not there. You know, the, the certain types of application would still not make sense because of liquidity and composability reasons. But we are seeing quite a bit of interest from people building derivatives. So imagine people building options, uh, perps, and those sort of projects. And there's a lot of demand. And I think that really started with DYDX, to be honest. Yeah, that's a fascinating take. Okay. So I want to talk about the alt token where, you know, there's this, there's some ideas about what the utility of the alt token might be. And my understanding is that there's going to be utility for both kind of ephemeral and persistent rollups. And so I'm curious to learn a little bit more about all of that. Yeah, so unlike many of the RAS providers that exist in the market today, so look at, for example, let's say Caldera and Conduit, which are some of the biggest RAS so rollup as service providers in the market. And the way they work mostly is where you basically reach out to them and you say, look, I want to have a certain type of rollup. Can you do that for me? So basically, they, they work in a kind of a service model. However, that service model is very close setting, right? So for example, you would say to them, okay, I want to roll up. Can you run that for me? Can you set up that for me? And they will basically run the nodes. They will run the sequences for you. Now, that's not... So when we spoke with quite a few gaming partners and DeFi projects, they actually want a completely opposite system where they want someone else to run the sequences, but they want it in a completely open setting. So imagine, for example, let's say a gaming company, right? They might be working with the likes of Ubisoft and they would like to tap into the marketing ability or the ecosystem, you know, let's say power that uh, you know, Ubisoft can provide. So they would want Ubisoft to become one of their node provider. And they can't do that if, let's say, they outsource the service to a RASP, you know, pure RASP provider. Right? So our goal was to build something which is much more open and decentralized. So you would, for example, come to this network that we call Beacon Lair and you'd basically request a certain type of rollup and you'd say, okay, I want to roll up that settles on Ethereum. I want to roll up that, let's say, uses Celestia as my DA layer. And I want, let's say, two sequences. And then anyone in the network or committee can go and put uh, and, you know, a certain amount of stake or you know, economic bond. And if they deposit that, then they, they are qualified to become your node operator or sequencer. And so this is where the kind of token play comes into, you know, token comes into play. But basically, we have to decentralize this network. And the only way you can decentralize this network by having some sort of economic system, right? And one way to do, do this is by our token. So basically, if you want to become a part of this beacon layer and a node infrastructure, you have to come and you know, put our economic collateral. And if you, let's say, want to provide sequencing service, then again, you will have to deposit some collateral, right? We are still discussing how that, you know, that collateral would look like in terms of you could either use, let's say, eigenlayers restaking mechanism, or you could also use something like a mix of eigenlayers restaking mechanism as well as, let's say, all their tokens. So roughly speaking, to summarize, if because it's an open network, you have to bring some economic collateral to be able to secure the network. And this is where uh, tokens come into play. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's take a step back here real quick. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about just from your perspective as a COO, I think there's some builders, operators out there that would be pretty interested in any generalizable advice you might have about your experience at AltLayer about really like building scaling teams like how do you think about that from kind of your vantage point from having you know some diverse professional experience but also from your current role i would say in the end it's all about people you know you need to be able to understand uh, and extract the best out of people and when you feel like there are people in the team who are who are dragging you or are not up to the mark you have to let them go and then i've seen by the way you know situations where many of our team members would say you know what it's not a good idea or you know this person is not doing the best, but let's not let them go. You have to let them go. You know, that's one thing. So I think a lot of the problems that in startup fail, you know, feel in the, at least in the early stages is around people, if not even during the later stages. So you have to be very careful with who you hire. And by the way, I saw a very interesting, uh, I would say, stand on how some people hire, where there was a model where someone was saying, look, 
I want to hire you, but not in a permanent way. But basically, I would hire you for, let's say, two weeks, literally. And you would work on a project or one problem with us for two weeks. And if we like you, then we will actually offer you a kind of full-time work. It's not like a probation. Where probation is more like you actually offer a contract and, you know, you, let's say, I don't three months, uh, you have a probation contract and then eventually you kind of turn over. It's more like a contractual basis. You just hire them for two weeks, you assign them a problem, and you let them work for a while. And if you feel happy with the performance, then you actually go and make them an offer. And so it's, we feel, I, you know, I personally felt like you need to be very careful with who you hire because especially if you are, you know, let's say early stage company, you CEOs and, you know, top executives, they are very generalist in nature, right? So you are, you know, you can do several things, but you need more expertise on certain areas from people who are actually really good at that. And you need to be able to hire really good talent. And um, a really good talent can make a huge difference. And by the way, it doesn't have to be, let's say you have to hire, you know, a, I don't know, 50 member team right off the gate, but you actually need even three good people in your team that can basically push you forward. So I would say that number one is you need to hire really good people. And two, from a, there's a management perspective, yes, there's a lot of thinking around fundraising and let's say making sure that you know you have enough capital to to continue for the next few years and therefore you have to make sure that if you are if you're doing a fundraise make sure that you raise enough money at least in these markets right that you have enough money that you can you know sail quite easily for the next two three years at least so i would say that's two advice that will make sure so if you have money on the table take them yeah that's terrific okay so here's a recurring question that comes up a lot in this podcast where if i were to ask you very just high level question of the future of crypto is blank. How would you fill in the blank from your perspective? I would say the future of crypto for me is a mix of pure fintech and a mix of elements of crypto into fintech. So imagine, for example, today, if you were to go and invest in a pure VC fund, it's very difficult because you have to be an accredited investor. But in the ICO world, the crypto stage, you could actually anyone could go and invest even less than $10 into, into crypto. And so I feel like you would see a lot of you know, projects that will fuse or take the, or the fintech companies that will take the elements of crypto and you know, become better. Or maybe the crypto companies will eventually take some of these stands that fintech or you know, will apply for regulatory license. By the way, we have seen that in Aave, I think it was a couple of years ago when they applied for the fintech license in, in the UK. So I would say that there's a lot of that will happen where you'll see fintech companies take ideas from crypto and kind of make those fintech projects products better. The second thing is you would see uh, fintech companies kind of venture directly into crypto. And you'd see that, for example, with challenger banks out there in the market, right? Where they are, they make certain sacrifices or certain trade-offs. For example, um, they might be custodial in nature, right? Uh, but still, if you look at their reach and their uh, distribution, that's huge. So you would need that distribution. So I would say that future crypto is, is generally very bright, but I think it probably won't be like the way we imagine to be completely open and all that. I think there'll be some changes that will happen on that front. Yeah, fascinating. Okay. So, you know, one question that may be, <clears throat> one question that may be a little bit similar to one I've already asked, but I, I think as a key difference where we've talked about your sort of advices with your C COO hat on. I'm curious, you know, just advice for crypto leaders and navigating crypto as a leader of an institution you mentioned the hiring component. You mentioned the fundraising component. Is there any other advice that maybe, you know, and one way to get at this might be if you could maybe go back to your, the beginning of your crypto journey, you know, how would you talk to yourself? What advice would you impart to yourself as you were sort of at the start for anyone who's listening and kind of thinking about how do they navigate this space? 
I think what is product development? I think this is something that people often miss. Uh, and I've realized, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I've, I also am guilty of this, where, you know, yes, some people say that, look, Web3, if you're building Web3, build for Web3 users. And what has happened with that advice, uh, you know, more often than not, is that people have ended building products for themselves. And what I mean by this, again, it's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing where basically developers build projects or build products that are so difficult to use. So, you know, take, for example, Uniswap as, as an example, right? If you want, if you're an average user, it's just impossible to go and use uh, Uniswap, at least on the LP side of things without actually going and watching, uh, let's say, uh, a one-hour tutorial video on YouTube. Now, compare that user experience with something uh, in, the, in the traditional space. When I download an app, no matter what fintech app you download from, from App Store, you don't have to watch anything. You don't have to go and watch a YouTube tutorial video to understand how to use that app. The app is very intuitive. So I think, generally speaking, I think the space needs a lot more UX, you know, user experience experts in the space. And I think we as product builders and also, generally speaking, builders, we often end up focusing uh, a lot more on, okay, how do we kind of complicate or make things so complicated that it's going to be impossible for people to use rather than actually building something that people actually want to use and people should be easy to use. And that, I think, is, is a huge problem in this space. Yeah, it's a great perspective. So, Emirate, last question here. What is your team working on right now and what's the best way for people to follow along on the journey? So we are basically building this uh, beacon layer, which is, as, as you mentioned, is currently on testnet and the idea is to completely make it open. So anyone... Uh, right now, it's in a permission setting. So if you want to become a node operator, you have to be whitelisted by us. But the idea is the next couple of months, we'll make it open. So anyone with the right credentials, by credentials I hear, I mean, if you can stake the right amount of tokens, you'd be allowed to become a node operator. So the idea is to make it completely open and permissionless. And so we actually will, will be pushing different upgrades to the testnet uh, over the next uh, month or so. So if you are, uh, you know, want to be involved with Autolab, please come and join the Beacon Lair and, you know, become a node validator. And if you want to uh, sort of follow uh, Altlay and the updates that we push, please follow us on Twitter at Altlay. Perfect. Emirate, thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this work you guys are doing, and I'm excited to kind of keep following along as things continue to progress. So thanks again for your time, and have a great rest of your week here. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me over. All right. Take care.